Welcome to the Psychology of Success. I'm Caden Terry, and each week I help young hustlers actualize their infinite potential by featuring interviews with world-class leaders in business, sports, and health. Now let's get into the Psychology of Success. Today, we're excited to introduce you to Summit Athletic Club, a premier fitness facility located in the heart of St. George, Utah. Summit Athletic Club is not your typical gym. With state-of-the-art equipment, a wide range of classes and amenities, it's a place where you can not only achieve your fitness goals, but also unwind after a long day. For Psychology of Success listeners, Summit Athletic Club is offering a special. Instead of the normal $100 sign-up fee, tell them that I sent you, and they will drop the price down to $25. I want to thank Summit Athletic Club for being a sponsor of the Psychology of Success. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a special guest, Treg Holbrook. So really quick, I want to give a little background on Treg and brag about him for a second because he's absolutely killing it in the business game. So he's the owner of Holbrook Asphalt. Um, he's in 35 plus states and he'll talk more about this, but he is just absolutely killing it and has been for a while. He's a guy that here in the community, especially with younger kids he's been someone that a lot of people look up to including myself and my little brothers Kyler and Carter I know you've helped them out a lot mentoring them giving them different advice so dude I'm so stoked to pick your brain today and share that with the listeners so welcome to the podcast and I'm excited to be here thanks for inviting me oh for sure okay so so I'm curious let's get into more of you know maybe how you got into business where you grew up where you were born and how you got to where you are today yeah, so uh, I grew up in uh, a small town in Idaho, Burley, Idaho. Okay. Grew up on a farm, uh, potatoes, sugar beets, that type of thing. Nice. We had kind of a smaller town or smaller farm. It was like a two, three hundred acre farm. It was it was one of the smaller ones there. And so, uh, you know, from a young age, you know, I was relied upon to get out and help. So, uh, I mean, it was early mornings, oh, totally. a lot of work. Um, you know, uh, when I was young, I didn't really like that a lot. I didn't fully appreciate it, especially I got a little, when I got into like middle school, I started hanging out with some kids in town. And I remember one, you know, one day I stayed overnight at one of my friend's house and we go home from school on the way home from school. We stop at 7-Eleven, play video games for a couple hours. We go to his place, play basketball, go hang out with friends and stay up late and sleep in the next morning, get up play again i'm like it's a life i'm like what like (laughs) people live like this like (laughs) so i like i think he had to take the garbage out i'm like do you have any responsibilities and i like i got home i told my parents i'm like you guys are like child abuse yeah what are we doing (laughs) what's going on and uh so at first i mean i didn't really embrace it but as i got into high school and and growing up i mean i really did learn to love it it was the greatest Childhood. I mean, I loved being out on the farm. I loved getting up in the morning and getting out and getting things done. Mm. Um, so it was great. Um, you know, probably, it, you know, the most valuable part of that was probably, in addition to learning the discipline and how to work hard, just really instilling a sense of self-worth and uh, purpose. I mean, because I was, you know, you know, even at a young age, I mean, I'd learned how to run all the equipment. And so there was times where, you know, I remember, you know, my dad telling my football coach, like, you're not going to see him for a couple of weeks because it's harvest. And I mean, I'm one of the only guys that knows how to run our harvester. So I'm out there, wow. you know, putting in 18 hour days because there's only a short little window to get the harvest done before it gets cold. And, and that was life. But, That's all but you that knew. was. Yeah. yeah. And so as much as some of the, some of the times I wasn't real, you know, hyped on doing that, it really instilled 
a sense of purpose and, and self-worth that, that was really good for me. And so it was great. I loved it. Uh, you know, went on, went out to college, went on a mission, went to Boston, Massachusetts. Nice. Uh, that was uh, phenomenal. Just had a great mission president, met just tremendous people out there, grew up a lot. Um, probably the greatest thing I got out of that is just learning how to get outside yourself and serve others. And mm-hmm. that was... Uh, I mean, it was just, it was great. I learned how to get out of my comfort zone. Um, and so got home, went to college up at Utah State. Uh, you know, during that time, right just shortly after I got home, our family ended up losing their farm. I mean, we, you know, the economics of those smaller sized farms just didn't really work out at that time. And so lost the farm or, you know, lost the house that we grew up in. My parents and family moved to uh, Texas. Uh, but I stayed, went to college at Utah State, like I said, and um, first thought I'd want to be a, an optometrist or a doctor. I got into college, started to take the pre-med classes, and didn't take me long to realize I was not <laughs> cut out for that. that I was not going to be a student for six, seven, eight years. No chance. Huh? Um, as much as I loved the campus life and I loved that part of it, uh, yeah, I was like, this is... I'm not going to be able to do it that long. So switched over, took some business classes. Um, and during that time, during the summers, I went to work for a company out of Idaho that did asphalt. And uh, so, um, you know, would do stuff during the summers with them. They convinced me after a couple of years to go move to St. George. They wanted to start a division down here. So they, they convinced me to come down. They told me, hey, come help us get that off the ground, and then we'll eventually you'll be able to take over and run that. I'm like, that sounds good. So came down here and jumped in and just kind of did a little bit of everything for them, helped them get this get that business off the ground, did a lot of sales, did all the operational stuff. I was foreman, superintendent, laborer, everything. Um, that was going really well. I thought I was doing a great job. Uh, the end of the second year that we were down here, they brought me in in November and they, um, told me they were going to need to lay me off. So they're like, Hey, we just don't, we're not able to keep you on the payroll. So come back in February, March when we kick back up. And you know, that really just kind of, you know, stunned me a little bit. This is after you were running the company here in St. George. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was running it along with, there was another guy down here and we kind of. But yeah, I mean, I was I, I was generating, oh, a, you know, punch a little more. Gut. <laughs> it was because they tell you to move down there and get it yeah. rolling, and they're like, "Nah." I mean, yeah. no, it turned out to be the best thing for me. But at the time, at that time, I was like, "Okay, um, the best thing for you." Okay, let's talk about that. Why? Yeah, I mean, because it really kind of forced me to, you know, this is just kind of a crossroads there. Like, it forced me to take a look at the reality of things. I'm like, you know, sat down and really took you know, took inventory of where I was. And I was like, man, I'm, you know, 25 years old. I don't have an education, don't have a job, uh, don't really have any marketable skills that would be impressive on a resume. And I'm like, man, you know, I got to get, I got to figure this thing out. So I, I'm like, am I going to go back to school? Do I go work for another company? And oh, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I know I can do this. I'm going to go just, I'm going to start my own deal. No way. And so. Were you married at this time? I wasn't yet. I was dating Yessie at okay. the time. And I mean, she was awesome. She was a rock star. She still is. But she was just um, really, it, she's like, yeah, absolutely. That's you, scary, You can man. go make this happen. And. 
And yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was too naive to be scared, I guess. Uh, you know, but really, um, yeah, I, I, I took, you know, those next several weeks and I did just, I really just envisioned the whole thing. Like I knew I didn't just want to start a, have a local pavement maintenance company and do that. I wanted to build the world's best pavement preservation business. Um, and so I really envisioned that in my mind, how I wanted that business to look and feel. I knew I wanted to scale up and whether I franchised it or whether I built the very best in the industry and then just duplicated it, you know, region after region. So I put this together. I mean, it was kind of a combination of dreaming and planning. I'd put notes down, write different things. I didn't have like a formal, formal business plan, but I really crystallized in my mind what I wanted it to look and feel like. And, um, you know, the... The other thing I did at that during that process is I somehow convinced myself that anything short of my ultimate goal of really building this business to the level I wanted to build it would be completely unacceptable. It would just be something I just could not live with. Mm. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was a really, uh, you know, later in life when I read the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, I, you know, understood the power of what I had done. Where did that come At from? Because if you hadn't read that book, I mean, because I'm just thinking in my mind, that confidence is insane, especially after you let go of your job and then going out and saying, I'm going to create the best company in the world of asphalt preservation. Where yeah. did that come from if it wasn't from a book? Like, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm amazed. That's like, a great question. I, you know, um, probably just a lot of that, that self-worth, that purpose that I had somehow developed, you know, growing up um, and... And so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, but I will tell you the power of getting your subconscious mind to receive that and, and the emotion that it was sent to my subconscious mind was very powerful, but yeah, having that crystallized, it did. I mean, it served me well when I faced a lot of obstacles later, Uh, but you know, so I'm sitting here, I'm ready to go conquer the world. But at the, you know, the reality was at that point. I was in no position to start a business. I mean, again, like I said, I had no capital. I didn't have access to capital. My family didn't have the ability to loan me money. Um, very little experience, and no, you know, uh, I mean, I would, I would love. I would pay good money. I wish there was like a hidden camera in some of those first uh, meetings I had with bankers. Um, I would pay good money to have video footage of that. I mean, <laughs> these guys. You're 25 years old. Going I, and I'm, I'm going in there with no collateral, but I'm like, you know, I just believed. And I mean, to, to have a little bit of naivety is good in business. I think it really is. It is good. It's, uh, I'm still naive about a lot of things, and I, I embrace that. I think it's awesome. <laughs> but I mean, I'm telling you, I was naive because I'm, I'm walking in there. Uh, hey, I don't have any collateral. I've been doing this for a couple of years, but I've got a vision of what I'm going to build and I'm a hard worker. I'm honest. And believe me, I'm going to pay you back. Give me a hundred dollars, a hundred thousand dollars and get this thing going. You know, I quickly realized banks don't really work. that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I mean, the looks Not on quite. some of their faces, I can just see when they close the door, they're just going this this guy, the audacity. But how did you respond to that? Being um, that young, 
I, you know, frustrated, but just, I, I was, like I said, my subconscious had already decided I'm, I'm going to figure this thing out. So, um, I just, you know, it was kind of smoke and mirrors, but I just figured out a way. I scraped together enough money. I convinced, uh, you know, one of the equipment, uh, you know, the applicator truck that I got, the manufacturer got them to loan me some money. I mean, uh, you know, you know, the credit card companies send you these checks in the mail. You know, you can use your credit line to write a check for, you know, 28% mm. annual interest rate. I wrote a check out of one of those to pay for one of my pieces of equipment. I mean, just figured out whatever I could trade. It did some work for some people to get some stuff. I mean, uh, so just got the bare essentials, a lot of used stuff, but just got enough to, to get me off the ground and get started. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, but yeah, just jumped right in. Um, you know, at that point just got by on a lot of hustle and grit. Um, you know, I would go out and sell for a couple weeks at a time, line up some work. I mean, I'm just driving to homeowners associations, walk around till I saw somebody, Hey, who's your, who's on the board? Who's the president? I was not a good salesperson. I still am not. But at that point, I mean, I was not, I'd go to businesses and just, you know, so I I wasn't I hadn't been trained in sales or any of that. But the thing about it is, um, if you're sincere, and if you believe in what you're doing, if you believe in the service or the product that you're delivering, you're gonna have you know, and and you got to have the persistence to go through a lot of no's. Uh, but you're eventually gonna get some yeses, especially if you're sincere and you just hustle and you stay with it. And so just on that, I was able to start to get. Uh, you know, line up some work. And so I, w- I would do that for a couple weeks and then go do the jobs and just go to one of the temporary staffing services, SOS or Labor Ready, and go knock out the, the work. And then, you know, that what that looked like was uh, usually I would go early in the morning, pick up kind of a three-man operation. I'd pick up a couple guys and by about 7.30, one of those guys would be gone. And then by about 9.30, 10, the other one would be gone. And it was just me out there finishing out the project uh, yeah. in those early years. In fact, I remember um, one of the first jobs I did uh, for Darcy Stewart over at Sun River Plaza. And I, okay. kn- I knew Darcy was doing Sun River Development. And I'm like, man, that would be a great project to get. I, I need to make a great impression. So I'm doing the, the Sun River Plaza and I'm out there, and it's like a Sunday. It's getting late. And, you know, my, you know, the guys that were on my original crew had all left me. So I'm out there, you know, no one man. I'm like, you know, spraying the with the spray wand. I'm kind of moving the hose out of the way, and then I turn the valve off. Go turn the master valve off. Hop in the truck, pull it up a little bit, get back out. Go. I'm doing this, and Darcy pulls up. He had to get something. He pulls up, like you know, it's getting dark and. I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to just think this is a Mickey Mouse operation. Mm. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, it was actually the opposite. I think it it worked. I, I think it I I think he respected oh, totally. what I was doing there. And I ended up I've, I've actually done a ton of work for him over the years. And we've, we've had a great relationship. But, I mean, those early years were no joke. It was it was not uh, it was not very easy. Um and it's funny because I, I went to a conference uh, in those early years, and there was a guy that was kind of in a similar industry, had a real mm-hmm. successful business, and, and you know, had a ton of respect for him. And he was talking about kind of the, his pathway. And, but he, he said, you know, the first, 
you know, getting to, you know, one, two million in sales, that's easy. You know, anyone can do that. Now getting from 2 million to 15, 20, that's really where the challenge is. And I remember like, I'm hearing that and I'm like, bro, like you're telling me this is like, this is the easy part. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for a long ride. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we just, you know, little by little we got, I mean, we, one of the things that we were just, that I think helped us be successful is we just had a laser focus on making sure that our customers, um, we wanted to make sure any dollar they spent with us, they got maximum value, you know, maximum ROI that we just were always, we wanted to make sure we found the very best solution for them. We're, you know, just obsessed about that, just committed to getting that value to them every time out. One of our models, and it still is, is, I mean, it needs to be a win-win, but they've got to win more than us. I mean, whatever whatever benefit we get out of a project or a, business, a relationship, they've got to get a little bit more than us. And so we're, we're just, you know, really committed to that. And that's, you know, we were able to get to a certain stage. And then I kind of figured out what this guy was talking about, because we, you know, we probably got to about two, three million and we just kind of were doing good, yep. you know, but... You know, the enemy to great is good. We were doing good. And then I, you know, kind of had took a step back and kind of, um, you know, kind of another crossroads where I'm like, okay, you know, in order to scale this, we, I've got to, you know, figure something else out. We, You know, I was spending a lot of time working in the business and not very much time working on the business. Mm. And so I'm like, I've got to figure out a way to kind of, you know, change that fine. And so I, I intentionally, you know, stepped back and looked at, you know, what is it this industry needs? What is it that these, that our customers could really use? What are their pain points? Where could we really add value to this industry? And, you know, the, the tools that they had to preserve their pavement, there just was, you know, some limitations to those. I, and I, you know, I figured, I'm like, we've got to find something that, we did a lot of the HOA stuff. We hadn't yet started to do much with cities. And then we did stuff with school districts, that type of thing. But I'm like, we've got to find something that's more durable that lasts longer. Because mm-hmm. we're coming in and the stuff that, you know, the very best, you know, silk coat products that we were able to put down last like two years, maybe three at the most. And so I'm like, we've got to find something that goes five, six years. Um, and so I kind of just started you know, um, looking up anyone I could in the industry, finding guys that I had worked with that had supplied us. And I'm like, how do we find, you know, and so, and again, I'm, I didn't no background in any of this, but I'm just, I'm going to get educated on it. Um, how do we make this stuff last longer? And so, you know, the industry didn't really, um, receive that well, it, you know, cause it's just kind of like, you know, why do you want it to last longer? You, that just means, you know, less repeat work or... I was just going to say that. I mean, it's kind of backwards in my mind. It shows where your priorities are, right? Is giving the customer more value, making it more of a win for them. Because like you're saying, if the asphalt, if it uh, gets worse over time, I mean, they're going to have to yeah. come back and purchase more product from you. But I love your mindset that you wanted it to last longer for them, even though you might not make as much money, but you're making it a bigger win for them, right? Yeah, for sure. And my thought process is... I may, I mean, if I can get, if I can provide maximum value to them, 
then when they do come back around, I'll, I'll be the one they want to use. But and I, even if it takes several years, but I'm going to go get more customers because I'm providing better value. So, you know, I I'm like we got to figure this out. But it, I mean, it took me a while. I finally kind of got in front of some people. There was a, a company that I was able to get in front of their R and D uh, people and pick their brains and and figure out. That's when I kind of first learned the power of the mastermind. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I learned how to communicate with people that were much smarter than me, and kind of get that organized in a way that you could actually break mm. through and and make advancements. Because these guys that were brilliant, I mean, they're you know. Um, chemical engineers and chemists, and I mean, they're very brilliant, but they're, you know, they just speak a little different language than I speak, um, but kind of learned how to communicate with them, and f- we kind of figured out um, there was a few things that were, I knew there was a particular type of slate, there's a particular polymer, there's some elements that if we could get more of that stuff into this formula, I know we can get more durability, but then... You know, they're telling me, well, the problem is you're already maxed out. You can't, if you add more of this and more of that, then, you know, it won't remain in suspension. The viscosity mm-hmm. will be out of whack. And so, like, okay, well, there's got to be a way. So we eventually found a whole different way of emulsifying the product. So rather than using, a, you know, a chemical or a soap as the surfactant, we found a clay emulsifying agent and found a different way to make this non-ionic emulsion that would then allow us to put more of the stuff I wanted to put in there. And so, but then when we put more of it in there, then that created a whole chain of problems. And so, you know, and they, I mean, I wore these guys out. These guys would be <laughs> like, you know, well, yeah, we can do that, but it just adds A, B, and C problem. And I'm like, well, let's just find a solution to those. And so we just kind of kept going and going. And and these are guys you're paying to sit down with you to kind of figure s- out to create yeah. something, invent Sometimes it. paying and sometimes just was able to get in front of them and just, you know, kind of get... Uh, feedback, you know, just, you know, it's, you know, it was a little mixture of both. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was quite a process. And, and I mean, during that process, I mean, and so, you know, that time, I mean, my business itself, you know, probably suffered a little bit because I was not, my passion was in this development side of things. I was now not, you know, I, I still worked a little bit in the business, but not near as much. And so, um, you know, but you know, I my vision was we've got to we've got to have something to break through here, and I I believed in this project, and so. But I mean, during that time, I I mean, it was kind of like obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, and there'd be times where you'd hit roadblocks that were like, um, you know, it was like, do I really is this? You know, maybe I just you know kind of. The doubt would creep in and then, you know, kind of the imposter syndrome, like, totally. what am I doing? Like, maybe just stay in your lane, go back, just be the mm. good contractor. You, this is, there's just too many obstacles here. But I, I mean, I really believe that my subconscious would not allow me to do that because I had already decided, like, you're going to change this industry. You're going to build the world's best industry. So, or the world's best business, pavement maintenance business. So, I couldn't, uh, you know, I stayed with it and just, we finally kind of had some breakthroughs and found a way to make this thing happen. We found a formula that, you know, kind of had everything that we wanted it to do. We tested it in the lab. We tested it out. And and we felt like, hey, we've got something that really can be a game changer. And so, you know, was excited about that. But then, I mean, as difficult as that was, that's 
again, that was probably the easy part. Now I'm finding, okay, getting that into the marketplace is, you know, marketing it is a much bigger obstacle than mm-hmm. actually, you know, because I learned pretty quickly. In business, I mean, in a lot of industries, it's not, the best product doesn't always win. It's what's perceived to be the best product. Mm. You know, I mean, people people buy what they perceive to be the best product, not what actually is. Now, sometimes those two are the same, but in a lot of industries, I mean, the product that sells the most is maybe the third, fourth, fifth best product. They just have the very best marketing mechanism. And so I'm like, well, I know we've got the best product, but we've got to, we've got to figure out how to get this into the marketplace. And so, you know, at that point I had, I, um, brought on a guy that I'd gone to college with Mark Beatty. It was a roommate of mine in college. And he is the, he's the most brilliant marketing person in the country. I mean, you're not going to find somebody that knows more about marketing. There's most people in marketing are really good at doing clever things that, that, uh, you know, to create branding and things like that. He just fundamentally understood how, and he's great at branding, but he understood how marketing and sales have to work together in concert with each Mm -hmm. other. And so he, it was great, kind of, you know, my next mastermind there, uh, we just, uh, uh, I'd come across a book by Chet Holmes uh, called The Ultimate Sales Machine. And I mean, phenomenal book. It just is basically a blueprint on, you know, on how to build a world-class marketing and sales system. And so, you know, we, you know, what I learned from that is really, you know, to be more strategic and, and, and not as much tactical, uh, you know, uh, Sun Tzu in uh, The Art of War, he says, uh, you know, um, uh, what is it? It's uh, the <clears throat> strategy, or strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the sound before defeat. And I, I mean, hmm. I knew I was a great tactician. And when I did strategy stuff, it was like, well, I, I could put the strategy together, but the combination of the building the strategy and then having the tactical focus to get that strategy Execute implemented, mm-hmm. that was something that, that Mark and I really went to work on. And we had at that time, uh, my brother had, got, had, had come to work for me, Justin Holbert. He's actually down in Phoenix and runs our Phoenix operation, but he's he was uh, you know pretty instrumental at that time as well. But we just were like, we've ultimately what we kind of figured out is we've got to create a whole new category in this industry because this product doesn't fit in any of the existing categories. There's just not a, you know, they, it, it won't be, we won't be able to get it to be adopted properly unless, so we're like, okay. And again, I mean, you know, it takes a little audacity to, to say, we're going to just create this whole new um, category, but that's mm-hmm. what we, that's what we did. And, um, just went out and found all the thought leaders in, you know, each of the different regions, got them introduced to it. Um, again, I'd probably love to have a, a camera in some of those early meetings. I mean, we would go in there and I mean, cause we knew, ex- we knew our product worked, but they would throw questions at us that we didn't, the technical side of things, we mm-hmm. would come out and I'd call, you know, these guys in the R and D side of things. And I'm like, what does Thixotropic mean? What does this mean? And, <laughs> So we can, you know, we got that figure, but it was just an ultra focus on the performance, not necessarily all the features and all that stuff. Mm. And the product did perform. Um, but we, you know, the other thing we did, that's where I really understood the value of, um, uh, 
you know, an educational based marketing uh, program and not educating them on our product. It we, we, we found if our target customers are experts in the market, the more educated they are, the more of an expert they are on this topic, the more likely they are to do business with us because they're going to understand where, you know, what provides the best mm. value and benefit to them. And then we're going to be able to come in. And so, yep. you know, when we introduced that, you know, the guys in our sales staff, they're tacticians. So they're like, now, wait a minute, we're, we're going to go, we built this whole core story, uh, you know, orientation. We call it, we didn't want to call it a presentation because presentation makes it feel like you're getting presented to. And the whole, you know, educational model is you're, you're teaching, you're not presenting. Um, yes. And the beauty of that is what it allows you to do if you're teaching someone, if you're really teaching them something of value, their guard goes down, their, their fences aren't up, people don't like to be sold. But if you're teaching them something that really will help their life be better, help them be better at their job, help them solve some pain they have or accomplish what they want to accomplish, then they're receptive, they're interested. The other thing it does is it, you know, they kind of now view you as an advisor, as an expert rather than a salesperson. Uh -huh. So our sales staff quickly became, you know, and still to this day, they're, they're, More teachers. they're teachers, they're, they're experts. They're, you know, people, you know, our clients, they'll call people in our, on our sales team about things completely unrelated to our product. Just like, Hey, we got this issue. And because they view the, you know, can You're you take pros. a look at it? And, and so, and we'll, we're always happy to help because it's so, uh, you know, it does that. And then the other thing it allows you to do is you kind of shift the buying criteria to your favor. And so, you know, but we had to, you know, that was a process building that out because um, we're basically teaching people things that about the market itself, about their, how to manage their pavement in a way that'll benefit them. And it really was, I mean, even if they never used our product ever, they got a lot of value out of this education. And so we were just really big on that. Now, our, our sales guys are like, man, well, I'm, we're spending a lot of time just teaching these people. I Don't I just want to go and sell? Let's just go sell them on what we're doing. We're like, no, there, you got to have, there's a strategy to this and it will, um, you know, you'll benefit from it in the long run. But that's, that's kind of how we jumped into that next level. And that takes a lot of patience for your sales guys, right? To see yeah. the vision. It's like, okay, you don't go in just selling them right off the bat. Teach them, mentor them, give them the value, make it more of a win for them. Yeah. And then it'll come back, right? Yeah, for sure. And mm -hmm. and some of them, you never do get anything out of some of the clients. And you got to be good with that. You got to know that, hey, I still gave them something of value and, and we're going to be okay in the long run if we're constantly doing that. So... Yeah. Wow. Okay, so you got um, the product you created, and you got the um, the business side as well, the contracting. So help our listeners understand, because you're killing it now, man. It's so cool to see. So explain to the listeners what your business is like today, where you're at, how many locations, all that, states. <clears throat> uh, so we're, uh, you know, in the Utah uh Nevada, Arizona, um, and then we've got uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. Uh, we've got some uh, partner contractor. We've got a partner contractor in that area. We also do some contracting there as well. Um, and then in the southeast, you know, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, like a lot of those, South Carolina, 
North Carolina. Um, we've got uh, an operation up in Chicago area. Not you know that's the Midwest. That's primarily what we've got. Not a lot in the you know in the east, the northeast or the upper northwest. But that's essentially where most of our stuff is right now. Jeez. So I want to highlight something for the listeners. So let's look back on Treg's story. I mean, he was just talking about how he was, I mean, think about little young Treg walking into the bank, asking for a $100,000 loan right after he was let off of his job with that confidence and that swagger in a type of way that he was going to create the best company in that industry. He had 100% confidence. And now he is all over the nation with his company. I think it's cool, something that you highlighted that I want to dive more into is the power of the subconscious mind because all that started with a thought, right? Yeah. You had the confidence that I'm going to create the best company in the world for my industry, had that thought, and then you just went out and did it and you created it. It's here. And so tell me about the power of the subconscious mind and how we can access that to achieve our goals. Let's talk about it. Oh boy. Um, I don't, you know, the best thing I could tell you is go, go read, think and grow rich. I mean, go to that. Uh, there is a section he talks about auto suggestion and it's funny cause you know, it's something that, I mean, it absolutely works, but what happens is people, people see stuff like that and it just seems kind of gimmicky. It seems kind of corny. So what, what is that for the listeners that don't know? So, suggestion. um, it, you're basically, you're, you're basically programming your subconscious mind to, um, you're to letting it know. Cause your subconscious doesn't use logic or reason. It just takes everything literally. So you're just letting it know. So there, you can be intentional about that. Napoleon Hill teaches you about like you basically, and when I let her, you know, later read his book, I mean, I followed the exercise and we did some sales meetings where I, you know, I'm telling her, here's the, here's the formula. And I mean, that, yeah, I, I'll basically, yeah, that's kind of, because you're, you're essentially, you're saying, okay, this is what I want to achieve. And you need to be specific. The more specific, the better. This is where, this is exactly what I, if it's, you know, and it doesn't have to be money. It could be success in any facet, but if it is money, what's the specific amount you want to have? You know, in my case, it was more exact, you know, getting an exact, uh, what I wanted that business to look and feel like and the scale of it and that type of thing. So you got to be specific on what it is you want. Then you've got to be specific about what you're willing to give to get that. And then, um, trying to remember the steps, uh, but essentially, you know, I wrote all this out and then I would, you know, he says in there, read, and this is what like the, the most successful people in the generation, the beauty of that book is, I mean, Napoleon Hill, he's, he's like a previous version of you. He's putting, he's going out and getting in front of Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford, Charles Schwab. I mean, all these guys that were, you know, extremely successful and he's finding it. What are the common things that each of these guys have? They all took a little different path, but he found, I think he highlights in the book, 12 or 13 principles that each of these people had some version of this. And, and he's like, puts it into this game plan, but he's like, these, this is what these types of people had told him. This is what they had done. And so he's like, read that read what it is you specifically want, 
where you want to go, what are you willing to give, and then read that to yourself every night, every morning, and it just kind of resets. Where and what happens is it's you know it's not necessarily it's it's all about your subconscious doesn't use any reason or anything because your the logic tells you when you walk out of a meeting with the bank and they're like you don't have any collateral so you you know what are you doing there's logic tells you look you're probably not i mean you're not cut out to do this but your subconscious has already been told no you're going to accomplish this so it doesn't use any of the so it just kind of it's a interesting process i don't com- you know completely understand exactly how you know how to teach it mm-hmm. um so I, I know it's powerful it's funny you bring that up because i do a similar thing as well with my goals um, i'm huge on subconscious mind so what i do i write all my goals in the present tense so for example like i have a goal of making a hundred thousand dollars um the way i break it up i say i have one hundred thousand dollars because then yeah. it's in the, the present tense and it trains my subconscious mind to become the type of person that would make $100,000 right now. Perfect. And then it, it helps me make decisions moment to moment to moment that's in line with that type of person. Yeah. Because my subconscious mind is already trained to think about that. Yeah. And it makes those decisions automatically. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're getting at. It's the yeah. same principle. Yeah. It's crazy. No, you, you already are that person. It's just coming. And it's the same way, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, when I'm putting this together you know there's there is uh there's no reason i mean and some of the people in our industry they're like i mean this small contractor in st george thinks he's going to start a whole new category i mean but it wasn't about you know if you if you use logic and reason you're like what i have no business doing this but you've already your subconscious already sees you as i'm already a titan in this industry even though i wasn't yet my subconscious believed it, so I believed it. And I just, when I would go in and meet with, you know, when we get this category put in place with the American Public Works Association and we're meeting with them and explain why they need to adopt this, and you just walk in there knowing I'm already that person, even though I probably wasn't there yet, my subconscious believed it, so... What type of advice would you give the listeners that want to get to that type of confidence? Because it's so cool seeing that, how you had it, and it just grew and grew and grew. So how would you help other young hustlers develop that? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, you know, I think following those steps, for one. And then you've, you've just got to jump in and do the, whatever it is you're interested in. If it's, a, you know, whatever industry you want to jump in, jump in and just look at it and say, okay, how could this industry be enhanced? And ju- you got to believe, look, I mean, um, somebody's got to, somebody's got to enhance this thing. Why not me? There's, there's no set criteria on, well, we're waiting for someone who was born with some extremely large brain or some extremely privileged. There's, there's none of that. Every, everybody that shook up an industry just came from a common background for the most part. So, Look at that industry and then just find out, well, what, what are some things? Where could I add some value to this industry? How could I enhance it? And just kind of jump in. You don't have to conquer the world in one day. Jump in and find, okay, um, it, learn as much as you can about it. And then just, um, you know, formulate in your mind, okay, one of these days I'm going to figure out a way to make a breakthrough and just stay persistent at it and 
and just realize you've got to have a mindset. Your relationship with failure just has to be completely, you've got to understand that failure is good. The more failures I have in a day, the closer I am to where I want to go. The more failures I have in a month or a year. So, um, you know, those, you know, you've got to understand those setbacks are just kind of temporary roadblocks that ultimately will get you where you want to go. And the more you just overcome obstacles, the more, the, the more you, more failures you face and then keep getting back up, that confidence comes from that, Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. How do you, because that, that's a huge part of business that I've seen. I talked about it with the interview you listened to with my brother, Kyler, and I. Like, for example, the Tundra that we had. And I didn't even share this in that episode, but someone reminded me. I was with a buddy. He was like, dude, yeah, that Tundra was a piece of crap. Like, I remember <laughs> you driving it, and you had to get out your phone. You had an app that was a speedometer because the speedometer didn't work. So he's yeah. like, yeah, dude, we were hunting, and you totally put your phone on the dashboard and use it as a speedometer. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. But yeah, so that was a huge, for those of you that don't know, I had this 05 Tundra with my brother that we bought and just lost a crap ton of money in it. Yeah. And at that point, I was so frustrated and wanted to give up with cars. But I kept going and I kept learning to where I found out what I needed to buy and what I should avoid. Right? Yeah. And I wouldn't have learned that without making that mistake with the Tundra. It hurt, Yeah. but it was an expensive mistake that ended up making me more money because of it. Yeah. And some of the, there's some times where I know you can learn some shortcuts from the failures of others, but there's some lessons that you just kind of have to learn on your own. And they just, they have the more impact if you had to go through those failures and it, it propels you, um, you know, so those, you've people that avoid the challenges and avoid failure tentatively have more of a safe life, more of a comfortable life, you know, at least stay in their comfort zone, you know, there's a limit to the amount of success you can have. Uh-huh. Um, but those, you know, jumping out, getting in the arena and just getting, um, getting know, after getting it, getting after it and, and taking those setbacks that each time you come back from one of those, you just have more confidence. Mm. So try it. It makes me curious, like thinking back on your business, like what's a failure that you've experienced and what did it teach you in that moment? Cause I'm oh, sure that boy. the listeners would love to hear that. Cause it's cool seeing what you've built today and they, they only see the outside of it, right? They see all the success, but I'd love to highlight, like if you have a specific story of when you've struggled and how you just push through anything come to mind. Oh boy. That's a, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, um, <clears throat> probably, you know, when we were uh, trying to break through and get this uh, this new category established, there would be times, you know, so like we would get, we got it to where, okay, um, and the thing you got to understand in our industry and in any industry, when you, especially when you start dealing in uh, municipal work, government purchasing types of situations, the value, you know, you know, having something that creates a lot more value, it's, you know, you're going to spend 30% more to get our stuff, but it's going to give you a 300% return. The, the world there is more low bid, just everybody bids and we get Apple, we just kind of get apples to apples and then the low bid gets it. And so the, we come in and we're like, well, there's no real mechanism for, well, 
this thing, you don't get rewarded for adding more. It's just fit the lowest common denominator and then be the cheapest price. Get Trying to get people to adopt a different mindset there. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, anything that's proprietary is usually scary to um, most municipal type places. But, um, you know, we, we, you know, had a lot of those setbacks. One of the biggest was we're like, okay, if we can get in with DOT and the DOT engineers understood, they saw what we're doing. Like, this is phenomenal. This would be a game changer. But then when you try to go through the committees to get this category recognized by the uh, DOT, uh, you know, and the first one we went to was UDOT, then now those, you start to hit those challenges of, well, yeah, this is proprietary. Can anyone else use it? We're like, no, the, uh, we're the only ones that have access to this. Mm-hmm. And and we may make it available, but, they, you know, it's only going to be made available to people that will have the discipline to use it the correct way. And at this point, that's not the case. And so um, we were pretty excited. We felt like, you know, we had... You know, all the thought leaders, the engineers had had bought in. They understood, look, this is, at this point, you know, they figured out this is going to last seven, eight years. The other stuff we're doing last three or four. It's 30% more. This is no, no brainer. brainer. Yep. But when it got to the committees, um, you know, they shot it down. The, really? They're, like, they're no, just we so can't stuck in their old ways. Because you can't, you know, the proprietary nature of it and that type of thing. And so... Did you pivot um, and have to change the model a little bit? Well, at that point, we felt like, well, a lot of the cities would tell us, okay, if the DOT, you know, as long as it's DOT approved, then we can put it in our, you know, we can, you know, do a procurement package and get it procured and we'll do a project. And so, but at that point, so I'm like, man, you know, all these cities that I know will do our work, they're not going to have that DOT approval to lean on. So the pivot for us was like, okay, well, we're just going to help convince the cities it's so valuable to you. Do it anyway. Do it, you know, and they're like, well, our funding, the BNC funds we get for our roadways come from the DOT. If it's not a DOT approved specification category, we can't use it for that. We're like, we'll just, okay, go find other funding. Grab it from another pool. Grab it from your general fund. Use your, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so we just, you know, so we got cities and towns to and counties to you know, we just had to really focus more on the value. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we need the DOT. I'm like, no, you don't need that. And here's why you want to do this. And here's why it's going to be better for your, you know, for your city. You're, you know, you're going to um, ultimately um, have a lot better managed system with this. And so once you got them fixated on that, we just found it wasn't as big a barrier as we thought it was. What a and great so, sales pitch, man. You're just showing the value. And it's yeah. undeniable. It doesn't matter. Look, here's... The problem it can solve, let us solve it, right? So good. Love it. So, Craig, you've dropped some amazing uh, knowledge bombs on us today. It has (laughs) been incredible. Um, And before we kind of wrap up with the last two questions, I want to know how can my listeners serve you and support you? Oh, man, just just go out and be the best version of yourself you can be. Uh, You know, I... uh, you know, if you've got any ideas you're looking to launch, get off the ground, uh, you know, come pitch it to me. I, you know, we, we love, uh, and I, you know, my, we, we've done a little bit of, of, you know, investing. Not, we don't necessarily, we're not looking to be a finance, we, we're certainly good with the financial part of things, but 
we really want to be someone that can enhance what you're doing, mm. you know, based on we've got a really good back end solution on our business and then just the, the ability to help you implement and, and market your stuff and enhance. So yeah, if you've got, if you've hit some roadblocks or some, some areas, you've got great ideas, bring them to me. So how, how can they reach out to you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Oh man. Uh, send me an email. Okay. We'll, we'll drop his email in the description and you can see his website too. I'm sure you got some stuff on there. What's your website? Just Holbrook Asphalt. They can find it on Google. Believe, I'm sure. Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there we go. Um, okay. So here's the last two questions and feel free to take, take your time answering these, uh, cause they're, they're pretty good. So Chuck, I want you to imagine that you could prescribe anything to the entire world and they have to do it for 30 days. What would you tell them to do? Oh boy. Um, <clears throat> I would say when you get up in the morning, before you do anything else, write down 10 things that you are grateful for. Mm. And then do the same thing before you go to bed. And don't shortcut it. Don't just tell yourself, yeah, this, this. Write down, physically write down 10 things that you're grateful for. Change it up, not the same things. Um, uh, you're going to live a lot better life doing that. And maybe spend 10 minutes, 5, 10 minutes a day just meditating, just resetting yourself and getting focused on what is my, what is my definite purpose? What's my primary aim? Where am I going? And is what I'm about to do today or whatever I just did today, did it get me closer to that definite purpose? If you'll do those two things, I think you're going to be in great shape. Mm, love it. So the, the gratitude, I want to highlight that for a second. I read a study the other week and I made a video about this on my social media. Uh, but if you do exactly what Treg is saying, I mean, this is once again, another common denominator of successful people writing what they're grateful for first thing in the morning. The study says that if you do that just once a week, it increases your happiness by 30%. Just one time a week. And imagine doing it every single day, twice a day, right? Yeah. It, what difference has that made in your life, doing that? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it eliminates fear. I think, it, I think when you focus on, it, it takes you away from being fixated on the things you don't have or the things that you're not you know, good at or any inadequacies you may have, it's, and it just gets you fixated on what you really do have going for you. And it just resets you, gets you in the right frame of mind. Um, so. Yeah, dude, it, it helps me so much because all of us, we're all chasing happiness in a way. And we all try and find it by either making money or with friends or, but really it comes from within, right? And that yeah. gratitude for me, it brings that joy right then and there in the moment as yeah. I'm writing it yeah. out. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Um, so last question. So these are called the, the two truths. So I want you to imagine, Treg, that you're on your deathbed. You've lived a long life. You've achieved all of your goals. Your business is thriving. You're just killing it in all areas of your life. You've written books and you've done everything you've wanted to do. But as you're dying or when you die, everything you've done and everything you've written, all the podcasts you've been on, anything, it's all wiped away and completely forgotten about. But you get to leave the world with two truths. And these two truths are things that you 
know to be true because you've experienced them and there are principles that you live by. What would those two truths be? Well, I mean, you've probably heard this before, I'm guessing, but um, you know, things in life happen for you. They don't happen to you. Um, having a, a growth mindset rather than a victim mindset, uh, the most dehabilitating thing in the world is to feel like you're a victim because then you don't have control. You absolutely have control over your happiness. You have control over where you're going to go. You may not get there as quick as you want to, but what you do today is going to get you a step closer. So just understand when things are thrown at you, it, it happens for you. And, and every great thing I've ever gotten out of life, every great relationship, any great um, you know breakthrough in business or in any other endeavor has come after I got dealt a, you know, a major setback. So um, you got to get out of that victim mentality and just understand, hey, that's something that just happened for me and go tackle the next obstacle. So that's a truth. Um, the other one is just I've learned people that celebrate others' success generally end up having a lot of success. And people that try to disqualify others' success or, or are, um, you know, try to justify it in, in different ways, it, it, you know, have a limitation. So, you know, just an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mentality, that abundance mentality, uh, celebrate others when they have success and, and be curious, not judgmental. I mean, be curious about like a lot of what you're doing. You're very curious about, um, what makes people happy, what makes people successful. That's a, uh, th- those are two truths that I certainly mm. have learned. It's amazing. Well, I appreciate your time today, Treg. It has been awesome getting to know you more and sharing all these gems that you've learned. Um, I knew, I know I got a lot of value out of today's episode. And so for all you young hustlers out there listening, I mean, take the time to think about what Treg talked about today and how you can apply it into your life. I know there's been a lot of gems, but pick one thing and I'm telling you, it'll help you a ton. And so Thanks for your time, guys. And this is Kate and Terry, and this has been the Psychology of Success. This has been the Psychology of Success. I invite you to pick one gold nugget that you'd like to apply in your life. Share this episode with a friend on social media and tag me at 11kato. Subscribe and leave us a review. Let me know what you enjoyed about this episode because I love hearing from you guys and what you think. Send me a DM on Instagram with your questions about business or anything we've talked about. Now it's time to get to work. Here's to actualizing our infinite potential one day at a time. This has been a production from a podcast studio.